Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. All right, we are in person at Data Council Austin, and we are able to sit down with Eric Sammer. He's the CEO at Decodable. I'm Brooks. I'm filling in for Eric. He got in a biking accident. He's fine, but wasn't able to make it to the conference. So I am coming out from behind the curtain here and excited to chat with Eric. We've got Costas here, of course. But Eric, to get started, could you just kind of give us your background and what led to you now kind of becoming CEO at Decodable? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to get a chance to talk about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, so so my background, you know, I've been doing this now for 25-something years, really focusing around data infrastructure. So I, I lovingly refer to myself as an infrastructure monkey versus like, a, you know, while people are doing fancy math and cool stuff with data, I'm moving bytes around and, <laughs> you know, flipping zeros to one. So I spent a lot of time working on things like SQL query engines and stream processing infrastructure, which is really taken up the last decade or so of my life. I built a bunch of systems internally for mostly market marketing and advertising applications. Um, and then sometime around 2010, late 2009, 2010, I wound up being an early employee at Cloudera and spent like four years working on sort of the first generation of big data stuff. And then wound up creating a company that eventually, you know, we were uh, we were acquired by Splunk and spent a bunch of time there working on real-time infrastructure, stream processing, and just like cloud platforms in general for observability data. Um, and uh, and then about two years ago, broke out and started Decodable, which is a stream processing platform as a cloud service. We could get into the details if that's interesting. Really focused around being able to acquire data from all of the fun and interesting sources, process that data in real time and get it into all the right destination systems in the format that's like ready for use in analytics. Cool. One thing we were chatting about just before we, we hit record that you kind of kind of brought up is just the idea of do, does real time matter? Could you unpack that for us and just kind of talk about what you mean there? Yeah. I know there, there are different camps I would probably argue different things. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there is a segment of the market who, I mean, people probably break down into three groups. There are people who are very sure of what they get out of real-time data. And by real-time specifically, I mean low latency, sub-second, you know, availability of data, either for analytics or for driving online applications and systems and those kinds of things. There's one group who fully understand it, know exactly what they're talking about, and have a strong opinion about it. There's a group of people who say, well, it depends on the use case. And like some use cases demand real time, and some case use cases don't. And then there's a third group of people who say nothing really matters. Like real time's never important and those kinds of things. And, you know, I think like, you know, selection bias, of course, but like we we talk to the second and third group, you know, or first and second group, sorry, you know, most of the time. And I would say like the biggest thing that we hear from some people is, you know, 
my use case doesn't require real time. And like the interesting thing there is that like at some level, I don't disagree. The thing I would point out is that like if you asked three years ago whether or not you needed to know exactly whether or not your food had been picked up from the restaurant and where it was in between the restaurant and your house, everybody would have went like, who really cares? And then COVID hit and now everybody fully expects up to the second visibility into where their fried chicken is, right? And I think that like, so like what winds up happening is the use case, I would argue, doesn't require real time until someone decides to do it and changes the expectation. And I think companies like Grubhub or Netflix or YouTube content recommendations or any of these other things have changed the expectations. And that as a result now is a, um, it is a either saves them money or generates revenue. And like one go-to use case for me is, I don't know about you guys, but I don't have a lot of loyalty to like retailers around certain things. So if I need, you know, I can't think of a good example. If I need a mop, I don't care where I buy it. I care that it's in stock and I care who can get it to me fastest. And if that's hypothetically Amazon, Walmart, Target, you know what I mean? Like I will get it from either one of them. So I care about inventory being up to date. I care about who has the lowest price. And like all these things are things that are responsive to inventory arriving at a loading dock or uh, dynamic pricing logic to adjust prices based on competitive sales and like those kinds of things. So my argument is everything's real time, like either in potential or, you know, something that winds up being real time, you know, because a competitor has driven it in that direction. And, you know, I'm sort of interested if you guys agree with that or not, but like, that's my take on the world. Yeah, that's great. Do you agree? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do agree. I mean, I think there is a reason we have all this infrastructure out there and all this technology being built. I don't think it's just because, like, you know, geeks want to, you know, like, have the equivalent of a fast car. Mm -hmm. They build Kafka, right? Like, something similar. But at the same time, yeah, like, I think the problem with real-time is that real-time is a very relative term and, like, the semantics a lot. So if you talk like to a marketeer, like what is real time and you talk to someone who is responsible for fraud detection, you're probably going to get like a bit of a difference. Yes. Not only definition of what real time is, but also like of the importance of real time, right? Yeah, like if my campaign, let's say, runs like five minutes later, yeah, okay, probably nothing will happen. Although I will probably be frustrated because I have to, right? But if someone gets... I don't know, like a report on fraud like a day after. That's not fun, right? right? But let's talk a little bit more about like the technology, right? We, I remember like what, some of the first like real-time processing, let's say pieces of infrastructure that came out of like Twitter. It was a definition of real-time, right? Yep. Back then. How like technology like Samza, what was the name of the Twitter? Like they had like a platform. Yeah. So, so LinkedIn had Samza. Twitter had 
initially Storm. Storm, yeah. Like, and then they built Heron, which mm-hmm. was another one. And then there were Spark streaming that came out of the Spark ecosystem yeah. and Apache Flink. And so, like, there's been a couple of these things that have grown up over time. Yeah. And I want, like, to talk about this and also, like, compare it with something like Kafka. Mm-hmm. To understand, like, what's the difference between Kafka and a system like Flink or Samza, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, like, let's pick apart sort of Kafka just for a second. Kafka really, there are four main components or projects that people talk about when they talk about Kafka, maybe even five. One is the actual messaging broker itself, right? And that's the part that, like, I think of as, like, Kafka. Then there's KStreams, which was the Java library for actually doing stream processing, and KSQL, which was the SQL interface built on top of Mm -hmm. KStream. Then there's Kafka Connect, which was the connector layer, and then there was the schema registry. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some of these things are under Apache licenses, some of these things are under the Confluent Community license, if I remember correctly. But, you know, so when I think about Kafka, I think of the broker proper, which is really just about pub-sub messaging or eventing, you know, so like really about just the transport of data and real processing capabilities beyond just moving it from A to B. And so I think that the processing systems that we're talking about, Storm, SAMS, KStreams, KSQL, Flink, which is the one that I'm probably most familiar with, that's what we're based on at Decodable you know, various other systems like that run on top of those Kafka topics, right? And many of them support not just Kafka, but Kafka-like systems, including mm-hmm. some of the cloud provider stuff like Kinesis yep. and GCP PubSub and those kinds of things. Okay, we have like the processing, right? I would argue, let's say, and let's forget like KSQL, KStreams and all that stuff that Okay, I have a producer, I have a consumer, I can write business logic there, I can do processing, right? right? On top of like Kafka. What's the difference between that and having like a system like Flink? Yeah. So in general, you could argue that anything that writes to a Kafka topic or reads is effectively doing stream processing at some mm-hmm. level. Like it might just be doing minimal transformation. It might be doing sophisticated transformation and those kinds of things. I think that the difference is is really like the stream processing frameworks are just that they're frameworks right so they're going to give you a bunch of capabilities including an execution engine typically that's optimized and sort of understands things like predicate analysis and aggregation operations and window functions and all these other kinds of things they typically also understand schema serial or event serialization, deserialization, they typically understand state management. Where am I in the stream? What happens when I fail and how do I recover yeah. to achieve either at least once or exactly once processing of data, you know, getting rid of duplicates, those kinds of things, or not producing them to begin with. And also some higher order concepts like a notion of event time and watermarking and like all of these other yeah. sort of more sophisticated things that sort of help achieve correctness the processing data so you know in that sense you should think about stream processing systems the same way you would think about a database in the sense that not that they necessarily work the same way but that rather than just have files on disk and like 
reinvent Postgres on top of that, it behooves you to take advantage of like the fact that people have put in a lot of work to get the correctness and the yeah. processing and those kinds of things. Does that make sense? It makes absolutely sense. But I have like a follow-up question on that. Like the way that you describe it is that like what how I visualize it. Like I have like data in motion and I'm applying let's say uh, aggregation, like any kind of like data processing as the data is like still like in motion. Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, let's say like, probably like a bit like after like 2015 or so, we started like hearing a lot about the concept of ELT instead of ETL because, okay, like the main, like what you are describing sounds more like ETL, right? You extract the data, somehow the data is like still in motion, like I transform the data and then like I'm going like to do something with whatever I produce from there, right? Yeah. But then we had like this whole concept of like, you don't have to do that anymore. Just let's just like extract and load the data. And after the data is loaded, you can go and like with extreme scale, go and process the data. Okay, assuming let's say I have Kafka there, the latencies are low, theoretically at least, I can get close, let's say like to real time. And in some cases, let's say I have something like Pino or ClickHouse, I can have like real time. Yes. Okay. So what's the difference there? Why we still need to have these complicated systems because they are complicated, right? Like some size not like the easiest thing like to go and operate yeah. out and do this processing like in motion. Yeah. I mean this is a really interesting question. I think it's a philosophical debate. So you know you're right if you look at the if you look at this through the lens of being for instance like a snowflake user like from your perspective you have many sources of data you want to get them into snowflake you want to do your processing there and why on earth would you ever do any kind of transformation so a couple of things one that comes up and a lot of the quote-unquote elt tools do this under the hood they are actually doing things like mapping data types and like they are doing processing but it's de minimis processing yeah. it's not business logic processing yeah. and someone explained it to me is that the thing about elt is that it's not actually that it doesn't do transformation it does it's that the majority of the business logic is pushed to the target system yes. and that definition made sense to me so it's actually etlt yes right you know yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. two t's in there which is okay when it becomes interesting, so a couple of things. One, you're actually using your costly CPU to do the processing if you do that. You know, there, there's latency characteristics and those kinds of things. But the, I actually think that the more interesting angle on this is that if you zoom out and you think about other places that data wants to go, you start to go like, okay, so like it's gonna to go to S3, it's also gonna to go to Snowflake, it's also gonna to go to ClickHouse or Pino or Rockset or whatever, you know, wherever it's gonna wind up going, Druid. It's also going to go back into operational systems like Elasticsearch that you can provide online product search and like, or Algolia or like whatever people are using these days. It might also get cooked in various ways and go do a bunch of microservices. And so it's not so much that you want to push all of your business logic in the world into the stream. It's that you want to have the capabilities to do impedance matching between all those systems. Some of them aren't allowed to have PII data. 
Some of them aren't don't want certain records. Some of them need quality fixed before it lands in those systems where you can't do updates and like mutations and like those kinds of things. And so I think I would think about stream processing the way you think about I use networking as an example, but like packet mangling on a network, you know, stream processing is the equivalent of your load balancer, right? Like it it allows you to do some amount of processing before the packets yeah. land in the target system. And I think when you think about it from a holistic perspective, you kind of go like, oh, then it actually makes sense because you're not tightly binding the schemas and the structure of the data between the source system and the target system. And like one of the biggest changes or one of the biggest challenges that I hear is that if you're doing ELT into a system like Snowflake and somebody makes a schema incompatible change, you've broken your target system. And like yeah. you're very tightly coupled to those operational systems. So I think that when you start talking about data contracts and larger organizations, like being able to do these things and pave over those problems, I think stream processing is one way you can start to cut into that. Yeah, 100%. And I think I asked this question not because, like, I totally agree with you. And I, I get also, like, why people might wonder about these things. Sure. And I think there's always, like, a huge gap between what theoretically can be achieved and what, like, in practice is happening, right? And usually that's, okay, that's where engineering comes from, right? Like, that's why we need engineering. That's why we engineer these systems, right? Because there are always, like, trade-offs. And, like, each one of them, has like unique trade-offs like yeah sure why not just use only clickhouse right and do everything theoretically you should be able to do it mm -hmm. yeah have you tried like to do like a lot of joins there for example right or how easy it is like to change the schema like on something like pino or like there are always like trade-offs and that's why like there is like at the end wisdom like in the industry it's not like, like these things are like just because you know crazy VCs and founders they want like to push their agendas and like <laughs> build stuff uh, that's what I'm usually saying but uh, I want like to go like one step before that the processing and I, because I know that like another like important component on Decodable is has to do with CDC mm -hmm. and CDC is like one of these interesting things that you know like everyone kind of talks about it and says it's important, like it's a very good idea, like all these things. At the same time, like if you think about it, outside of Debezium, I don't think there's any other like mature at least uh, framework to attach it on like an operational database, like an OLTP database and turn it into like a stream, right? I think not in the open source world. Uh, certainly there's a bunch of commercial systems that have been around yeah. for a very long time in sort of various forms. You know, I think Golden Gate is probably one of the more well-known HVR, which was yeah. acquired by Fivetran, does this kind of thing. So there's those kinds of things. But I think in the open source world, I actually don't have a great sense of like Airbyte adoption these days. And I think Airbyte actually uses Debezium under the hood. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, so Debezium is the one that I know best and we know best at Decodable because again, we're based on parts of that. But, but I think you're right. I think 
you know, one thing that is interesting is not just about lower latency to getting the changes, but there's this whole host of applications, especially like on the operational side of the business versus the analytical side of the business that can use change data capture data as effectively triggers to like kick off a bunch of really interesting stuff. You know, we were talking earlier about inventory gets updated. Maybe you want to make only things that are in stock searchable, you know, and you want to play with search relevance, you know, for instance, for like an e-commerce site, you know, based on inventory. So like that's the kind of thing or marketing campaigns when PlayStation 5s come back in stock, I want to alert everybody who has one on their wish list, right? Like those are the kinds of things that I think we can enable with CDC beyond just database replication, which is a core use case, of course. Yeah, why do you think like we haven't seen more open source like projects around CDC? Because it's really hard. Because every database system implements exposure of the bin log mm-hmm. and the transaction log a different way and some of them don't have there really hasn't been a single good way of exposing this so postgres mysql oracle yeah. mongo they all have like just different database level specific substrate you know substrates for those kinds of things and I think it just takes a special kind of person to commit themselves to going and yeah. solving that kind of problem. You know, we are very lucky to have, you know, Gunnar Morling. He was the project lead at the yeah. museum at Red Hat for a long time at Decodable. So like Gunnar like spends a lot of time thinking about these kinds of things to his credit. But it, it's, I don't want to say it's thankless because I think people appreciate it, but it is really hard. Yeah. You know, it is really hard. Yeah, it makes sense. And like, one thing that I always found interesting, both in good and in a bad way, about Ibezium it's, uh, let's say, attachment to Kafka, right? It is a project that, I mean, technically, like, you have, in a way, like, to run it with Kafka Connect, at least. Like, it, uh, the moment you decide, like, to not have Kafka there, you start being, like, very hacky with it, right? Yeah. Do you see, like... I mean, that, and I'm asking you not because, like, okay, obviously, you're not like a committer or like you yeah. own like the Basium, but you work with it, right? Like, it is like part of your stack. Like, do you see like this changing? And also, why? Like, why it has to be so attached, like, to Kafka? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's multiple layers there, like, in the implementation. And so, like, in even internally inside of Decodable, we wind up using Debezium without Kafka in certain places, mm-hmm. like for certain use cases, more as a library, yeah. you know, to, to access certain things. It's definitely tricky. You got to know the internals. I think it's quite frankly, and there is, and that, again, I'm not a, like an expert in like what's happening in the community on this. So, excuse me, please take it with the grain of salt. But like my understanding is that there's a long-term feature request inside of the Debezium community to support. Yeah running without Kafka there. I think this is like a trap that open source projects fall into is that like, there's always this like, well, why don't we make it configurable thing, which explodes the complexity of these projects pretty significantly. I, you know, my sense is that 
The upside is you could potentially remove the Kafka dependency. The downside is that it only makes it more complicated. I mean, this is like a plug, but you know, one of the things that we focus on is just making Debezium less complicated and Flink is part of that for us as well. So like if you don't know or care about Flink and Kafka and Debezium, we try and create a platform where you can define a connection to Postgres and get the result in Pino or in Kafka or in Kinesis or mm-hmm. in any other system that we mm-hmm. wind up supporting there without having to deal with like the guts yeah. on this stuff. So like to some degree, that's the value or yeah. part of the value that we deliver there. So next provocative question. I heard you like saying that you have like three pieces of like technology that you are using as part of the code double, like the Bezium, Kafka, and Flink. Each one of them, it's an operational nightmare. Okay. <laughs> yes, like, that uh, is not controversial. I'll take that. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I had like whenever I had like to do with any of these. Okay, it wasn't fun. Let's put it this way. Like you need like a very like, I don't know, like a special type of person who enjoys working with these things. Yes. So I'm scared. Why would I come to Decodable when I know that like there's like all these complexity there? Yeah. Why I would do that? I mean, that's what pays the bills at Decodable is that like the people co- reason people come to us is because they want the capabilities, but they don't want yeah. the operational overhead. Yeah. And so, you know, Flink alone has a couple hundred configuration parameters, if I remember correctly. It's, yeah. it's sizable. Our goal is to like make that disappear. So like we try and offer what I think is the right user experience, which is largely serverless. You can give us a connection, you know, a bunch of connection information for our database or a SQL query. And like, you don't have to know that it's Debezium and Flink and like all these other kinds of things on the hood. If you do care, we give you the right trapdoors to like, you know, give us a Flink job if that's what you want. You don't want to give us SQL or something like that. And we'll handle that. But it's funny because there's like this Goldilocks zone where like if it's so complicated, people don't want to adopt the technology at all, no matter Mm -hmm. how much a vendor paves over it. And if it's so easy, then no one needs us, right? (laughs) So like obviously, you know, that said, I do think we always want to make it easier and we do spend some time upstream trying to like, you know, do some work there to make this stuff, you know, easier to use. But the reality is that all of the options, all of the, well, I don't want to use S3 as my state store. I want to use, you know, this other thing and like all that pluggability, all that optionality makes it more like a toolkit for stream processing and less like a solution for stream processing. And so, you know, there's value in that, but that cuts both ways, right? And so, I don't know. I like to think, I'm biased, but I like to think that we solve this problem for people. But but you're right. I mean, it's a real concern, the complexity of any disaggregated System. I think there's been some good discussions about disaggregation and like the modern data stack yeah. and those kinds of things. It generates complexity. Yeah, you know? yeah, 100%, 100%. And uh, okay, I know there have been also like some very interesting announcements about the product lately. And, like you mentioned like the modern data stack and I know that one of these has to do with So would you like to share a little bit more about like some interesting things that are happening like with the product right now? Yeah. The two kinds of users that we see in Decodable 
our data engineers, you know, who are ingesting data or sort of like making it ready for ML pipelines and analytics and stuff like that. And then application developer who are building these more like online applications, you know, you know, real-time applications. Same underlying tech stack. So for the data engineers, you know, out there, what we wanted to do is allow people who know Snowflake, DBT, and Airflow to be productive stream processing people without having to take on the Debezium, Kafka, Flink stack. And so for them, we announced earlier today support for a DBT adapter. We now support DBT. You can use DBT to build your stream processing jobs in SQL with the same tool set and the workflow that you know. And the other thing that we're super excited about that we announced today is support first-class support for Snowflake's Snowpipe streaming API. Now, without spinning up a warehouse, you can ingest data in real time into Snowflake with no S3 bucket configured, with no SNS queues, with no IAM policy stuff. Just tell us what the data warehouse is, the data warehouse name, and we will ingest. And it turns out that Snowflake has made this incredibly cost-effective. So you're not paying for warehouse time. There's a small amount of money you know, that you wind up paying in terms of credits, but uh, it is substantially more cost-effective to ingest yeah. data into Snowflake and it shows up in real time, yeah. which is incredibly interesting. So when you say real time, because like the last time that I worked with Snowpipe, I think the end-to-end, -end, and when I say end-to-end, -end, I mean like from the moment that like the event hits Snowpipe to when you see it like on the view, like um, when it gets materialized, like inside like your data warehouse, think about like span of like three minutes, like two minutes. Is this like something that has changed with Snowflake? Yeah, so this is what the Snowpipe streaming API okay. does. You're actually writing, I don't know the implementation. My understanding is that you're basically running into Snowflake's internal formats there. So you're skipping a lot of the batch load steps. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've seen on the order of, you know, seconds and less and even less than a second, I think. So like you can actually like run select statements and watch records change. Yeah. It's incredible. Oh, it's wow. incredible. Yeah, because I think like the previous at least like implementation, like the first implementation of like Snowpipe was more of like a microbatching architecture. But was still like using let's say S3 under mm. the hood like to state the data and like but it was obviously like uh, optimized in a way like to reduce the, uh, like the latency there as much as possible but again when you have object storage in there you add like another layer of latency you cannot avoid that right, right. so that's very interesting that's something like, i should definitely like also like check for myself i knew that snowflake was working on like the streaming capabilities that they had so it's very interesting to see what they've done and i'm also like looking forward to see what Spark and Databricks are going to be doing on that because I think Spark streaming it shows its age. Like it's like sorry to say that, but I don't think that anyone like really loves working with that stream. Like it's very inflexible. Like mm. it's really hard. So I'm very curious to see like what the response is going to be there. Yeah, I. You know, I've had the privilege of working with some of the people who are now working on Spark streaming, structured streaming, yeah. and, and so it's hard for me to say structured streaming. Yeah, and and those kinds of things. I'll say this: I mean, I won't claim to be an expert on the internals of Spark, 
I'll say that they have really smart people. They yeah. are working on this. You know, we, of course, are super biased. We we think that Flink has effectively won, you know, the out of like all of the open source projects, it has the most robust and sort of battle tested stream processing engine. But I'm interested to see what the team at Databricks does. They have a fantastic team over there. Yeah. And my guess is that it's actually going to be very hard to make the kinds of changes that I think they need to make without breaking anyone who's already using it today. And I think that's going to create a challenge for, you know, for them. Yeah, definitely. I think it's going to be interesting because like, I think it it, it also touches like the fundamental concepts behind like Spark itself on how like it has the guarantees it has with like micro batching and like all that stuff. So it will be very interesting to see like what they come up with. But they will definitely come up with something. Like for example, like the okay, the auto loader features that they have like on Tetabricks, like it's pretty good actually. Like it's very like okay, it doesn't have like the simplicity that like Snowflake has, but at the same time, like it's very robust, like in both performance and like also like the capabilities that it gives you. And okay, it's always Databricks will always be a more configurable product than Snowflake. Like, they have a completely different product thesis, right? Like, in terms of the user experience, which uh, makes, like, total sense. One other thing, like, I wanted, like, to ask you is about, like, data lakes specifically. And there are, like, two reasons for that. One is because streaming data and data lakes, okay, they make, like, a ton of sense together because usually streams provide, like, the volume of data that make viable having a data that's one of the reasons. The other reason is because all the table formats, like Delta, for example, and like Iceberg is also working on that. I'm not so sure about Hoodie, but I'm pretty sure they also have like something similar. There is a concept of CDC there, right? They propagate changes like when you do like something with a table and you can have like a, like a feed to listen like to these changes, which is kind of interesting to see this from happening like in systems that are supposed to be more slow moving, right? By definition in a way. So what's your experience so far in terms of streaming processing and lakes, both from consuming and pushing data into them? Yeah, you know, I think it's funny. I mean, we say we use three words like continuous streaming and real time. And I actually think that like continuous processing is what Hootie and Iceberg and Delta Lake are, and, and I think Delta Live Tables specifically yeah. with Databricks are all trending towards. And I actually think that's a positive thing, mm-hmm. right? It's really about the propagation of change yeah. throughout the dependencies, yeah. like the downstream processes. I think that, like on the whole, this will remove increasingly remove the need for sort of out of band processing on a lot of these kinds of things, which is, I think, a net positive, you know, and I think anything that simplifies the lives of data engineers is a good thing, you know, just like way too complicated to do relatively simple stuff. I think continuous processing and better primitives for continuous processing are going to be seen in the data lake. But I agree that like these things are compatible because again, I view the data lake as one destination for streaming data, you know, and again, like that's my bias because a lot of our customers have these online systems as well that need different cuts of data and stuff like that. So I think that this is actually 
a natural continuum of this change-based or continuous change-based processing that can now extend into the data lake, which historically has been like immutable, which has always been complicated, even as far back as the Hadoop days yeah. with HDFS and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, 100%. All right, and one last question from So we talked at the beginning of our conversation about the history behind like the streaming processing frameworks, right? And they go back like pretty much like the same, like the Hadoop era, right? Now, since then, and like this whole like big data movement, we've seen like companies, you know, IPOing, like Kafka became like Confluent, IPO. Okay, Databricks, let's say they IPO'd. They mm -hmm. haven't, but <laughs> they, let's say they did. They're on their way. Yeah. yeah. We have Snowflake. There's a lot of like, let's say, value created from like data related technologies. But we haven't really seen any of these like streaming processing frameworks creating a company that is like, you know, the Snowflake or like the Kafka or like the Confluent of like right. components out there. Why do you think this is the case? Especially like after seeing like the industry like investing so much in them, right? Like because we are talking about like super complex distributed systems that someone has to build. And there are like many attempts on them. It's not just Flink. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think, you know, a couple of things. Well, one, to their credit, I would say that Confluent has done some of this, right? Like, even though, like, we probably overlap with them a little bit, you know, we'd like to partner with them, I think, more closely than we do sometimes. But, you know, I think, to their credit, they are probably the closest thing to a publicly traded company that has those kinds of, that is based on that kind of capability but not a pure stream processing kind of solution. You're absolutely right. I think a couple of things. One, I really think that the use cases have finally caught up to the technology. I think in a lot of cases, even back in like 2015, people weren't as bullish on what they could get out of the, I don't think that people fully understood what they could get out of lower latency, you know, sort of higher throughput data on the processing side. I think people are starting to get that now when you see, if you're a logistics company, you see Grubhub or you see FedEx, and you start to get it. So I think that's been part of it. I also think that the tooling was nowhere near as mature and as sophisticated as it is today. We talked about a bunch of different systems. I think each generation of at least the open source stream processing systems, excuse me, have gotten like incrementally higher throughput, higher performance, but also just like more stable, more correct under failures, easier to reason about, and you know, quite frankly, got SQL support. Yeah. And I think like as much as we as much as we malign SQL, like people know it and it works and like people get it. And I think that like gaining SQL support is actually a big accelerator for stream mm -hmm. processing in general. Mm -hmm. That's super cool. Now Okay, one more question. I have to ask that too, sorry, but yeah, I just thought about it. So, the, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Like, I, I, like I, can't, I, I cannot do that. So, talking about like streaming processing, right? Like we also have like a new family of like technologies based on like timely data flow and like the data flow family of like processing out there. Materialize is one of them, but there are like more. Mm -hmm. 
what's your take on that and how this is different compared to something like Flink? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is that it, there's a lot of differences in implementation for sure. Timely data flow and like what the materialized team have done there. I mean, it's actually really interesting and exciting technology. I think that they are tackling the next, at least, you know, from my vantage point, they're trying to make streaming more intuitive by attacking some of the consistency stuff that like tends to crop up in stream processing. I think it's really interesting. I think the tech is probably less, and again, I'm biased. I sort of have to put that on the table with, as a disclaimer every time I start to say something. But I do think it's less mature yeah. than things like Flink and all these other kinds of things. So warts and all, you know, I think that like, you know, Flink is incredibly robust and and it's sort of well understood in this kinds of cases. But I think it's anything that pushes stream processing forward, I think is a good thing. And so differential data flow and timely data flow are exciting projects. I yeah. think it'll be really interesting to see what materialize and that kind that generation of of companies do with that technology. I still think it has a little bit of a ways to go, but like, you know, I think that's a place where I'm sure Frank over at Materialize would disagree with me. You know, yeah. so like that's a it's like an interesting conversation to to have. And in fact here at the conference, you know, there is a presentation on uh, tiny yep. data flow. Yep. So it'll yep. be yep. interesting. Yep, hundred percent. All right. So that's all from me for today. So cool. we should conclude before I come up with more questions. <laughs> <laughs> These are great. Yep. I love these questions. We have got past the buzzer, I think, Kostas, because you had so many great questions. But Eric, before we sign off here, if folks listening want to find out more about Decodable, what's where should they go? Yeah, they should go to decodable.co and they can sign up for a free account and get started right away. There's a free tier there that allows people to get up and running with both Flink APIs as well as SQL. Awesome. Well, Eric, thanks so much for coming on. Guys, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.